Welcome to the Heroes of Reality podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Welcome, adventurers, and on today's podcast, I have Noah Falstein. He is a game designer and producer who's been in video games since 1980s. Uh, he was one of the first 10 employees at Lucasfilms, or Lucasfilm Games, um, as well as DreamWorks Interactive and 3DO Company, which became defunct. He runs the Inspiracy and writes the Better by Design column for a game developer magazine and was hired by Google in April 2013 as the chief game designer, uh, where he worked for the last four years and leave in 2017. And we're going to find out what he's been up to lately. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Noah. Hey. hey, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate you being here. My pleasure. No, oh, it's awesome. So um, I, I think I saw you. I don't know when I connected with you, uh, but I remember seeing you speak at a conference and you, you I mean, you seem so on par and so knowledgeable about the space and about, I think you're talking about uh, neuroscience and game gaming. And, and I was just like, okay, who is this guy? And so I started like, looked at him, I'm like, man, I'm like, I really like to talk to him. It looks like you, 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 You've had quite a bit of experience in this whole area and genre, so um, I would I'd really like to first open up to you with like, it's kind of set in the frame is what got you into the whole world of games and game designs? What was that? What was the genesis that had you leave the community to go off to to level up your skills as a game designer? Yeah, I'm happy to to dive into that. I mean, it's it's I started so early that. Uh, I often get people saying, hey, you're a game designer. Can you give my, my kids some advice about how to break into the industry? And when I broke in, it wasn't an industry and there was you know, sort of no breakage involved. It was uh, more a question of the people who kept saying, are you nuts? You, know, you actually want to try and make games for a living? I mean, what are these video game things anyway? You mean like you know, that Pong thing? So it was that, that far back. And uh, as a consequence, it was really just that, you know, I, I, I wanted to do it. I turned out to have a, a pretty good knack for programming, which was essential. You know, I, I, I went to uh, college in the, the late 70s and was the very first person in my college to uh, work on a video game as, as part of my curriculum. And, uh, you know, now they actually, I, I just saw last year, they were uh, rated as one of the top 10 um, schools in the country to study game design. So I'm, I'm happy to see that uh, it, it paid off on some level there. What school was that again? This was Hampshire College in Western Massachusetts. Uh, they, they basically let you design your own curriculum. And I, with all of my professors, they had never you know, seen a video game beyond the, the very simplest arcade stuff. So it was really strange to have one of their students working on one, but uh, that was enough to get me into my first job in the industry as soon as I graduated. And, you know, I, I believe people who said it might be a fad because I, I didn't just want to give up on it. I figured I should enjoy it as long as I can before it burns out. And so far, so good. That's awesome. Yeah, it feels like almost like a cheat, like you hack the system when you're turning in your game as a thesis. And you're like, ah, this is... This is this is work. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, I was supposedly showing off my skills in programming and what I learned about astronomy. I, I made a game about uh, mining the asteroid belt. And in fact, if you've seen the um, you know recent uh, Expanse TV series, 
a very similar in, in concept to the kind of world that they were imagining of people out there mining asteroids and bringing the stuff back to uh, the bases on, on the um, you know, major asteroids and Mars. And uh, I would imagine people like uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are now looking at that video game, trying to understand how could we actually make this a real thing, since that seems to be the so, so Elon Musk, it's one of the bits of trivia a lot of people don't know. He actually interned at a company called Rocket Science Games uh, in the 90s. And uh, I was working there as a consultant at the time. I probably was in the same room with him, but uh, even my friend who was the project leader doesn't remember him as a, a you know, a particularly memorable intern. So, uh, but I think it's great that it was rocket science games. You know, he clearly knew what he wanted to do, you know, way back when. He had a plan. He had a plan. That's really, really cool. I, I mean, what about you? I mean, you've had quite a journey from Lucasfilms to just, just uh, Google. What allows you to make decisions to jump into one company or another company? What causes you to to uh, form that pass? Was that luck or was it just, was there a certain uh, design structure or strategy behind that? Mm, I'd love to learn. I wouldn't say strategy so much as a lifelong passion for uh, learning new things and wanting to try, you know, experiment and be on the cutting edge of things. And the games industry has been wonderful for that, continues to be the place where so much is, is happening along those lines. Uh, and, you know, as we get into what I'm doing these days, it's, it's more of the same of uh, trying to find out what the, the new cool thing is and, you know, how I can harness what I've learned before and move it into that next area. Uh, and that's really been what's happened. It's also a very turbulent industry and uh, I've been laid off. I've had companies uh, fold that I worked for. Um, but, you know, for each one that goes uh, goes under, there are five new ones the next day that are starting up. So it's always uh, exciting to be able to, to do that. And I've simply followed the fun and, and what interests me and always had a little bit of thinking about, you know, is this a, a smart decision in terms of something people will pay me for? But uh, usually that comes second to, you know, will this be a really fun, exciting thing to do? Mm. And happily, it's been an industry that's, uh, you know, been good at supporting people that way. Yeah. And how's it been um, going through the journey? You said fall, talk about following the fun. Um, game design is a really amorphous term that could be product design. It could be UX, UI. It could be there's a whole bunch of things of what would it be? How would you describe what is it specifically that you do in, in this world or what are, what are the things that you that you that that get you excited to do? Yeah, I, game design. I, well, I started, you know, as I mentioned, as a, a coder, actually, yeah. we all called it programming at that point. Um, and the idea of design as a separate discipline. Um, I was two years in the industry before I met the first person who actually was a full-time game designer. And it was a bit of a revelation for me. It was a guy named John Newcomer, who I'm, I'm still in touch with. And he had designed uh, the arcade game Joust and some other famous ones. And I came to Williams Electronics and just was great working with him. Uh, he inspired me that I could actually expect to, to move away from programming and just do game design, which was always my favorite part of the process. 
And in those days, it was just a generic term. These days, there are at least four or five different disciplines within game design, whether you're a, a level designer or a systems designer or a narrative designer. Um, but quite a few people, including you know me with my background starting that way, do at least a little bit of all of those things and, and more. Uh, some of it is just figuring out what the game is going to be about. Some of it is getting into the sort of deep structure and doing spreadsheets and figuring out how you know each unit, each character in the game is going to have certain powers and how they balance against each other. Uh, some of it is is helping uh, craft a story or structure a story or write the story yourself. Uh, and some games, of course, have no story, so it really depends on on the type of game. And it's it's been a good mix. It's it's a rare uh, discipline that like architects and maybe a few other people combine a mix of, of science and creativity and aesthetics so that it's not enough to, to have a really good aesthetic sense like um, some fine artists might have. You really need to know the technology. Uh, uh, filmmakers, you know, directors are also another group that have to understand how filmmaking works, how a camera works, they have to understand optics, as well as good storytelling and, you know, all of that sort of thing. And, being a game designer, I think, is very much like that. Mm, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's. I mean, you're designing. It's just, what can you design? You can design the levels. You can do level mechanics. You can do the, the power balance. You can do the narrative. And so it's like there's there's so many pieces that go into this world creation. Just find a slice or you can, a one-man army who just codes it and programs it. So it's, it, there's a lot there, which I think is fantastic. Two questions, but first question is, in terms of, do you have um, frameworks or models or go-to behavior things in terms of design that you that you lean on, like um, you know, looking at, for example, the hero's journey arch, or looking at keeping it simple, or looking at uh, play patterns or play testing? Or is there a certain go-to things that you use to to kind of create frameworks around your design process? Oh, yeah. Thanks. That's an interesting question. Uh, it's something I think about a lot. Uh, in fact, oh, about 20 years ago, my colleague, Hal Barwood, and I did something called the 400 Project that was inspired by uh, Hal, who was a, a former filmmaker. And he said, in film school, we have all these rules of thumb that they tell you about. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. If you have a camera angle looking down, that means one thing. If you're looking up, it's, you know, the camera's looking up, it means another. He says, you know, he, and, and by the year 2000, he said the games industry has enough information that we should be laying out what some of these rules are. So he and I went out and started basically collecting them from a lot of fellow game designers and writing up some of our own. And it never got fully finished. I, it's still a, a side project for me to do, I hope, someday. But I think about that a lot. And um, in addition to those kind of basic rules, just to speak directly to what you're saying, one of the first things I tell people uh, when I teach a class in game design is the first step that I always use is to identify your constraints, uh, specifically things like major constraint is always budget. You know, is this something that you're going to be doing on the weekends on your own that basically has no money? Have you raised some cash? Do you have some savings? Are you working in a big company? And, you know, the, the biggest games now have budgets. Uh, above $100 million, and it's uh, you know, quite a range from people sort of still working in their, their uh, basements and 
uh, going all the way up to these things that are actually completely on a par with big uh, Hollywood blockbuster films in terms of budget and time. Uh, so sometimes the constraints are more technical of, you know, you want to make a virtual reality game or you have a genre constraint in that you love Fortnite and you want to make a game that's like Fortnite, but you're constrained because you're doing it on your own and how can I get as close to that experience as possible. Anyway, knowing what those constraints are, uh, it's one of the ways to tell the difference between a, a beginner and a uh, real expert because the beginners say, I want complete freedom. I don't want any constraints. And the experts actually welcome the constraints because that's where the creativity comes from. When you're, you're stuck in a little narrow space, that's when your brain, your subconscious kicks in and says, ah, here's something that will actually work to make Fortnite on a budget of you know, $100,000 instead of $100 million, that sort of thing. That's great. I mean, because you want to know, okay, if I'm going to play the game, what box am I in? And so you're trying to define the box that you're in, but people, some people go, this is the greatest game ever. There's no rules. There's no constraints. There's no time. There's no nothing. But that doesn't sound like a game. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, that's great. Oh, that's a really good premise. I haven't thought about it before like that. So that makes a lot of sense. How do you, um, as you're going through them, because you, you've, you've been in the games industry for a while, a little bit, a little bit of time. Um, how, how do you keep the magic alive? How do you keep getting, because sometimes it's a craft, it's something you're passionate about, but over time you lose some of the magic. What, has there been things that have relit the, the, the fire in your soul to, to pursue this? Yeah, well, I'm happy to say, you know, it continues to do that. But the caveat is that, uh, you know, I'm constantly reinventing what I do. The, the kind of work I do now is just radically different than what I did at the beginning of my career. Um, you know, even uh, taking aside the difference between doing the coding and doing game design, the kind of game design I did, the, the very first projects, we had uh, games that fit into 2K bytes, 2048 bytes of uh, memory. And that was the entire code for the game, the images, any kind of sounds. And I mean, which by anybody who knows what's going on now sounds totally ridiculous. Sounds like saying, well, we had a full novel but we fit it into the first paragraph and it was, you know, Warren, but that was always one paragraph. Um, but the thing is, that was what games, you know, were limited to in those days. As that's changed, uh, you know, as I said, the specialties have come out and it's meant that I'm constantly evolving. Uh, a lot of the work that I've been doing recently has been in games for health and games involving neuroscience, as you mentioned. I've been working with virtual and augmented reality a lot. But, uh, the years I spent at Google were uh, very good for me that way because it overlapped very well with the time that they were experimenting with both their, their VR and AR projects. And I got to wear Google Glass for a year and experiment with what, what that was like wearing that in public, uh, something not a lot of people had a chance to do. So there's always new things coming out, sparking it all. And uh, just this week, talking to a new company and they're doing really exciting work with uh, major movie and uh, television intellectual property to create games that will publicize those and uh, back from my earliest days with you know lucasfilm and, and dreamworks i i really have a penchant for combining filmmaking and storytelling with uh, games and interactivity so that's got me you know reignited something i haven't done in, in many years that's awesome. There's a lot to touch on there. Um, and I have about 
six questions from that. <laughs> the just one thing at a time. So first we'll go to the Google Gaming. Did, did, was Google uh, the because you're um, I think it was like chief game designer or lead game designer for Google. Um, and was it primarily so for the AR VR? Did they come out with specific games? Are there because I'm trying to think of what Google games there were. It was <laughs> primarily for the well, I just in full honesty, just trying to understand. Like I know they had the the headsets like the Daydream, uh, the uh, Google Daydream, and definitely built on the cardboard before. Was that primarily what it was for, or what? Do you know what? Uh, is there a certain games that that Google came out with? Well, it's uh, it's a story that I I couldn't tell you know for a while because. Uh -huh. the, I didn't even know the the full um, details, but uh, you know, and Google has taught me to be very careful about my non-disclosures. So let me just say all the publicly accessible information that I was brought in in 2013, and uh, my boss and I were um, you know old friends, and he told me about this opening, and I, I went through the Google um, uh, hiring procedure, which was uh, uh, pretty rigorous. Um, and the idea was that his boss wanted him to create a 200-person uh, game development studio within Android and make uh, high-end, very high-quality games for the Android phones and give away the source code for free because that's the way that Google does things and yeah. you know, lets other people make even better games and help compete more with uh, the iOS uh, uh, game you know, side of things, which was very successful at that time. But my boss's boss was a guy named Andy Rubin, who shortly after we joined the company, suddenly he wasn't in charge of Android anymore, and then he left the company. And it was only about a year ago that we found out that he'd actually been um, accused of sexual harassment and, and pushed out of the company. And it was that he seemed to follow up on the projects that he was causing, including our 200-person studio. And we got up to about 20 people before we realized this was not going to take off. Um, but that group then ended up doing many different things within the company. Uh, and I did work with a group that made a number of games for both uh, Daydream and uh, we even did some uh, little bit of work with the, the Tango Augmented Reality Group. Uh, but they were demo projects, you know, very simple games that were put out in, over the course of just uh, six months or so. And unfortunately, you know, there didn't get much publicity, so I'm not surprised you didn't hear about it. But the fun thing was is that there were, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people at Google who came from the games industry, and there were many, many different divisions uh, within the company that were experimenting in games. There's something you may be familiar with uh, is the, the uh, uh, Google Doodles that you get on the front page of Google when you do the search and you get to yeah. click on it. And every once in a while, there's an interactive one, and a lot of them are games. And I worked with that group for a while. Um, but as chief game designer, it was a great title. It was meant to be for this studio. But I ended up getting to morph that into working on game-related projects throughout the company. And uh, great education for me. I just uh, am sorry that things didn't work out, that we were able to, to get that studio going. I mean, there's so many moving parts at Google. I actually remember driving, I have photos up somewhere on Facebook, I'm sorry, it can be searchable, of driving down to Google or up to Google and actually pitching one of our Sweet Escape games for the Daydream and then trying it out and going, oh, that's great, make a bid and all that fun stuff. So, and I remember going to one spot that was wrong and they're like, oh no, you got to take a car and drive five minutes that way to the other part. I was like, how big 
is this freaking place? I was like, I got to drive my car and I might be late to this meeting because of traffic. I was like, oh my God. So I could see how you might lose a 200 person studio in a giant city of people trying to do stuff. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, 200 was, was pretty good size, you know, at least as an intention for Google, but it was still just a drop in the bucket worldwide. I mean, it was an amazing company to work for. I've never worked with for anybody anybody a, a fraction that large. And uh, I also got with the work I did to travel around to I think by the end I had hit 18 or 20 of their offices worldwide. And it's always fun to be able to go to some foreign country and walk into a, uh, an office and everything was always set up. My phone and computer all automatically connected to the, the internet. It really felt like walking into the future. And in fact, you know, in this this world we live in today, where everybody's you know communicating uh, online over these video conferences, Google's been doing that for 15 years, and uh, you know they had all of their studios linked together with these massive screens and great cameras in every one of the offices. So, uh, yeah, it was just a very surreal science fiction kind of experience. Yeah, that moment where you pause, you look around, and you're like, "What am I doing here?" <laughs> as, I, as epic. So. Getting out of that, you said you're, you're much more focused on taking the skill sets and reapplying it and reinventing yourself and, 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 and finding new ways to find excitement. And so the areas that you're looking at right now is uh, 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 gaming, neuroscience, virtuality, augmented reality, um, and how all those things work together. What about that are you passionate about? What are some things, what is your overall um, lay of the land and thoughts, how, how gaming relate to neuroscience and neuroscience relates to AR and VR and all that? Yeah, wow. That's okay, let me unpack that one. Yeah. Uh, take it bit by bit. You know, it kind of goes back to your earlier question of of what I'm passionate about. And game designers, I, it's almost a tribal thing that I I find that people who are professional game designers, video game designers, I should say, although I, most of this applies to to board game designers, we all have uh, I, all ninety percent of us have extremely similar personalities. Uh, in fact, informally, we, we cluster on a couple of the Myers-Briggs personality test things. I think um, I, I found that in groups of game designers, about 75% of us fit into the same two categories that are only about 3% of the general population. Uh, so for example, we're almost all equally balanced between introvert and extrovert because we need to be able to go off into a room and visualize a, a game in your head and figure out how all the pieces are going to work. And then you need to leave that room and work with the team. You know, maybe some of the early guys who could do everything on their own didn't have to do that. And some indie uh, programmers, uh, game developers now can do that. But even indies tend to need at least a couple of people to do uh, the visuals or the sound if they are doing everything else. There are just too many specialist areas you need. So personality-wise, I think there's a game designer type. And what has really motivated me all along, I played all sorts of board games and created my own little games when I was a, a kid and a teenager. Uh, and when computers and video games came along, it felt like this was made for me. And I have so many friends in the industry who felt exactly the same way. Um, so at its core, that creation of the interactivity, creating an experience that you author, but other pe people then get to build their own story, their own voyage as they play your game. That's what's kind of kept me going. Uh, 
And it's also what got me into this, this current neuroscience thing because uh, again, one of the things that we share as game designers is we wanna know, we're getting inside the heads of our players. We're also observing our own uh, you know, neuroscience uh, in action as we are responding to the games we make and trying to analyze what's fun, what isn't fun, what's working, when am I feeling overloaded and not able to handle all the inputs when is it too boring and, and, and you know, just not enough going on? And because of that, I've always been interested in how the brain works from a, a you know, sort of informed, you know, nerdy science kid background. Uh, and it was wonderful gradually over pretty much the last 20 years to run across more and more neuroscientists who turned out that there was this match made in heaven because we game designers want to know how's the, how does the brain work why are some types of games so specific? Uh, why do people get motion sick from virtual reality in the same way they can get seasick or car sick? And the neuroscientists, on their hand, they have all sorts of tests that they do for people. And the tests, you know, particularly 20 years ago, would be, okay, here's a, a crosshair on the screen, and now a dot comes up. How quickly can you move the crosshair to that dot? Great. All right, now repeat this for 20 minutes and stay focused and we want to measure all of this. And they put on you know, the EEG headset. Mm -hmm. And after about 30 seconds of chasing a dot around the screen, people are saying, am I done yet? You know, can, I, can I do something else? And so game designers and game developers create these wonderful things that are perfect test beds for what the neuroscientists need to do. And in turn, we're learning from the neuroscientists how to make our games better, how to make them more effective, and also how to help people, you know, treat uh, diseases and disorders through gameplay uh, or train doctors through gameplay. So it's all become this virtuous cycle where the uh, game people want to know more about how the brain works. The, the neuroscientists want to use games more effectively to do their work. And, uh, you know, we're just in those early stages, really, you know, even though it's been 20 years since I did the last, uh, the first one of these, uh, we're just now hitting our stride and having big pharma companies fund this to the, the tune of, you know, tens of millions of dollars on, on some of these projects. That's epic. So it's basically, it's the perfect ecosystem for studying humans. So you're kind of like 2.0 Jane Goodall studying the monkeys, but we are the monkeys and we also made the forest. And that's what allows us to be able to actually say, okay, well, what would happen if I take a whole bunch of bananas, put them in a box and have a bunch of monkeys around them, they get all aggro and they smash the box. Okay. Can we just, can we design a, a better forest uh, or place? So I totally get what you're saying. It's, it's an ecosystem, which is cool. And you're right. That, that allows us to study and pay attention and then get other industry experts to really study this and understand the, the value of it. And especially with VR, you can take over the entire space and environment. What do you think in the next five years is going to have one of some of the biggest impacts on neuroscience and this immersive technology? What are the areas do you think are really going to be um, either most impacted or the greatest opportunity to go and explore for people to, to really um, help us understand ourselves? Uh, boy, another interesting question. And, and I have a, an interesting monkey uh, anecdote to, to pass Please. on. But let, me, let me hold that for a moment and answer your question first. Um, lots of times I've been asked, you know, things like what's the future of games or what's the next big thing? 
And what I've learned is, you know, number one, it's really hard to predict the future. Uh, as everybody who saw VR, you know, as I did back in the 80s and, you know, believed it was really cool, but thought, yeah, by the year 2000, we'll all be wearing these headsets and or having it beam, you know, directly onto our retinas. And, you know, some stuff takes a lot longer. Some stuff just never actually turns into what you think it will be. Um, and one of the things that's always true is that there's not one future, but many futures. So in terms of this neuroscience and VR and AR and everything, lots of really exciting things going out. You know, I'll mention two or three just off the bat. Um, one of them is wearable headsets. Uh, I don't know the details. Uh, Apple is rumored to be working on their own augmented reality headset. And of course, they've got a great reputation for figuring out how to make cool stuff that consumers want and are happy to wear. My experience with Google Glass all those years ago was that, wow, having a headset is really useful and it felt like being super powered in a lot of ways, but making one that looks kind of menacing and, and makes you look like a, a Bond villain, probably not a good way to go. So, uh, you know, that's that was one interesting thing. But if we have a future where we can wear something that looks not much different than sunglasses, and has uh, both displays and cameras and all sorts of other stuff built into it, possibly has other wearable sensors so that you might actually be uh, using some of your, your own brain waves to control what's going on. All of those things I think we're gonna see in the near future on the medical side because we're wearing more and more sensors and you've got you know, Fitbits and Apple Watches and these things that are monitoring your blood oxygen and your uh, heart rate and all this sort of thing. I think we're going to see a lot more both on the fitness side and on the, the health side. So um, fitness meaning, you know, just exercise and calorie intake and health in that um, my wife actually was, was diagnosed with uh, uh, AFib, you know, a heart condition. And we got her one of the new Apple watches because it allows you to just, you know, hit the watch and essentially take your, uh, do an electrocardiogram and measure your heart rate and record that. And I just, it's wonderful that, that devices are being able to do that sort of thing. Huge range of, of new areas that they're going into. Uh, you know, the wearable stuff in general, whether it's on your head, on your wrist, you know, uh, on other parts of your body, I'm seeing all sorts of interesting things going on there. Um, and one other thing that I'm really excited about that again crosses over in these different areas is um, eye tracking. There have been eye tracking headsets for at least five years that I'm aware of, but so far it's not mainstream. And you know, most of the, the headsets you use for VR don't do eye tracking, but the ones that do allow you to control what you're doing just by looking at something. And boy, that feels like magic when you're doing it. When you combine that with augmented reality and you can look at stuff in the real world, uh, I'm terrible with both names and faces, so I have lots of trouble remembering where I've met people. And I can't wait for the device that will let me walk into a busy conference area and have little uh, pop-ups over the head of every person saying what their name is. And, you know, th this is Dylan. You met him at, at the Game Developers Conference, you know, four years ago. The notes you took are, you know, look here to scroll up on the notes. You know, we really have the technology to do that today. It's just a little expensive. And obviously there are um, uh, privacy issues around that, but if everybody buys into it, and I'm sure at conferences, 
the majority of people will be happy to do that. It's like having your business card out there you know, on your chest. It's going to be just great. Um, so all of those things and many more, I mean, esports, uh, just huge number of areas that are just burgeoning that are going to keep getting bigger and bigger for the next 10 years. That's epic. Yeah. It's, it's like there's, um, as a confluence of all these different technologies coming together, very much how video games was a confluence of writing and, you know, uh, art and all these other things. And man, that one 2K texture thing you're telling me, I was literally looking at my artist today and he was showing me how it's fitting everything on a texture. He's like, this is the 2K texture. And he's like, I'm, I'm fitting all the weapons on this one thing. I was like, oh, that's really cool. And he was showing me that like two hours ago. And then and come tell me like, you're like I put an entire video game on that texture. I was like, I don't want to, I'm trying to understand that. I don't want to, like, that hurts my head to try to think about. I already think the constraints on, on like the Quest headsets are already hard. I can't imagine, you know, and even though like, you know, it's a 10 pound trash bag, try to shove five pounds, 15 pounds of crap in it. And that's just the, the infinite game that we're playing. But what I thought was really cool is that you're talking about the combination, the confluence of biofeedback devices meets gaming meets immersive technologies and then and then bringing all these different interdisciplinary skills together to really create something that is greater than the sum of the parts like for example you had a great use case i'm terrible at knowing names if only this thing would tell me everything that i needed to know about this person so i didn't feel like a bad human right that's a, a bad social person right which is a great great use case um, are there other use cases that you see com combining together these future of sensors and, and tracking things that actually solve problems? Because sometimes we get into the, uh, there's like the, oh my God, this is so cool. And then you go, oh, what do I do with it? Is this a gimmick or is this actually solving a problem? So in, in what ways uh, does it actually, are you excited about these future use cases to solve problems? Well, I, you know, I'll, I'll you know, actually go a little farther and talk yeah. about anytime we have a new useful technology, it tends to both solve problems and create problems. You know, you get cars and they're incredibly useful, but now you have car accidents and drunk drivers. Uh, we get cell phones and, you know, it feels it was sort of almost overnight that smartphones made it mandatory to have one around, but you have problems with people not talking to each other or um, you know, being so immersed in their phones that they they walk into traffic and cause a a, a traffic accident. Um, one of the things that I thought about when you know talking about headsets and being able to uh, see people, something that's come up for for years now. I think there was some experiment being done at MIT 15 years ago of wearing something that had a camera that basically recorded your life and same kind of deal i'm thinking about memory stuff that wow wouldn't it be cool to just constantly record it and then if you need to go back and say what was i doing you know four years ago or what was happening that would be really great well i watched the the um tv series black mirrors made in the, the uk and they had an episode they're, they're really good at this at taking what seemed like cool ideas and ferreting out the scary awful parts of it and they showed, and it's a spoiler for people who haven't seen this episode, my, my apologies, but they had a, a couple that uh, get into an argument and it starts out very small, but they keep throwing up uh, on a TV. You know, you basically tap this thing they're wearing and it throws it up on the TV. And he says, oh, you know, I told you about her. You know, I, she was an old friend. And she says, no, you didn't say she was an old friend. Sure I did. 
And she goes and taps it up, and there he is four years ago saying, you know, oh yeah, you know, she was she was a lover of mine. Say, aha, and say, ah, but but you told me that it was okay. And no, I never said that. And they basically their marriage falls apart because they are able to do that. And uh, I had a girlfriend years ago who had an incredible memory, and I, I could actually explain, oh, no. you know, I, she would, she would, I would say, she'd say, did you remember to bring that thing back, you know, from work today? And I said, what thing? You didn't say that. So oh, yesterday I said this, and you said that, and, and she actually repeats it almost word for word, and I can even hear my voice when she does that. It's like, oh, you're right. I'm sorry I screwed up. So some things, you know, the technology is going to, to, be incredible in some ways, but it's going to be, yeah. you know, social issues that we're going to have to deal with. That sounds like a guy's worst nightmare. <laughs> I, I, it, it's so funny. You're right. The, the black mirror is, is almost like, uh, like, uh, uh, the game of Thrones or it's almost like, um, it's almost like having a ex-girlfriend. We're like, Oh, I'm going to get with her. And it's all, it, it's, it's going to be different. It's going to be better this time. And then you you actually find the technology and it's horrendous. It's so it's 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 crazy because the technology is really a race between disaster and utopia. And then and they just take this whole thing where they go on the, the, the utopia and then they just hard turn it, which is terrifying. And you know, it would be super beneficial if we all walked around with cameras. If I just walked around with a camera on my neck the whole time, it would be so, so useful. But let me ask you, what is a part, what is what is a part of the human condition that having a genuine conversation like me and you going back and forth just like this right now has a certain level of it's cool but then there's the privacy that we really want to have there's like this weird thing in order to be fully free we can't we don't want to be seen and then there's a, and, and so what about that why is that with us would you do, can you have any thoughts on a, on a design human perspective of why we don't like being recorded yeah i mean it's it's a complex thing I think you know, so. I'm I'm really big on evolution and looking at uh, what's known about evolution or what's theorized to help figure out everything from game design to you know product design that sort of thing. And it's a real what you bring up is is one of those areas that is is you know under research. There's a huge amount that needs to be done, and a lot of it is because there's no good way to research. For example, what um, human beings were doing you know, 20,000 years ago, even a thousand years ago, we've got some written records, but uh, we as humans are really good at being deceptive or rewriting history to fit our, our view of it. And it's not even just a human thing. There are, there is a lot of research with um, the, the great apes, you know, our, our chimpanzee and gorilla cousins to show that they also have learned deceptiveness and they know how to um, you know, hide things from each other, but they're also very social. And, you know, looking at that as clues to where our ancestors, you know, our common ancestors lie. Mm -hmm. I think that as humans, we are constantly mixed between wanting to know lots of stuff about each other. It, it helps you survive. It's really critical that, you know, our ancestors that didn't really care what their fellow humans were doing, were less likely to survive to become our ancestors. And therefore we all have genes wanting to know what other people are doing. But by the same token, people have learned that if they're completely transparent, there are unscrupulous other people who will take advantage of that and manipulate us. And so everyone learns as they grow up that there's some fine line and who they can trust. And if you think about a lot of our, our um, movies and books and games for that matter, 
a lot of it comes down to who's trustworthy and you know you can't count the number of plots that involve somebody who seems like a friend but turns out that they're actually a bad guy or relationships that work out really well but then they go sour and suddenly everybody's at each other's throats mm. that's the human condition and so on that level i think these technologies will always be used in a combination i mean you say we're talking here but I'm staring into a little green light on my laptop and you're, I'm not even sure where in the world you are, frankly. At the <laughs> and it's gone a long way from sitting right in front of somebody, but uh, we learn to accept those things. And I think that these new technologies, as with all technologies, will open up new things. You, you were very eloquent there of, you know, sort of in between a utopia and a disaster uh, that's always happening. But also if you look at human uh, history over the last few thousand years, we've had a really good run in terms of most things getting better and better. You know, the, despite all the problems we have in the world now, now there's a great book called um, Enlightenment Now uh, that, that talks about all the trends over the you know, centuries and shows how in so many ways things have gotten better and better. Uh, but of course we focus on what the problem is right now. You know, I, when I was talking to you earlier, I, I had a headset on and I'm having problems with my Bluetooth headset. And that's really irritating to me. But when I was a kid, it would have been a magic toy that was just blowing my mind that it could actually connect without wires and, you know, do all these great things. So, you know, yeah. you get something new and there's good stuff and there's uh, the irritations when it doesn't work exactly as you want it to. Yeah. Yeah, we, we quickly climatize to new stuff and then depreciate it quickly. It's the hedonic treadmill. So we're on it, we're running, and we're like, oh, I gotta get faster. And so that, you know, the importance of taking that step back, I, I could totally see um, that does answer a lot of questions. Also, yeah, we are fascinating with with like human drama. So like, we're all pretty kosher, but if like, if you're like in a Starbucks and all of a sudden someone starts yelling, everybody will turn and pay attention to go, what? Like, we're all pretty kosher beings, you know? Yeah. And then you see that thing go down and everyone, you, you pay attention because you, you 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 want to know it's a part of your your world and so it's it's yeah it, it's built into our system and we're wired for survival so we pay attention to see is that is that fellow monkey going to help me or hit me with a large rock yeah and so that makes that makes a lot of sense and then if you if it's recorded then you don't know what monkey's going to see that and hit you with a large rock <laughs> yeah yeah well i mean we've seen the recording thing happen you know Certainly, Nixon, you know, should have realized that recording what he was talking about was not a good thing. And, you know, it goes goes way back before our current technology that as soon as people were able to record things, there were scandals. Uh, I, I've, I've read about when the telephone was a new invention and how a lot of people felt that it was breaking privacy and it was causing antisocial behavior because you don't meet somebody in person. You talk over this gadget. And you know this is the nature of things, uh, or even people complaining about uh, the invention of writing and how it means that people will no longer be able to um, recite three thousand line epic poems. And he was right. I, I forget who it was who who was saying that. It was maybe Socrates or somebody uh, talking about the the burgeoning you know youth who just don't even memorize all these things. And and now same thing's been said of Google or Wikipedia that. You know, now instead of knowing something, you just look it up and it's, it, you know, people are ignorant. Well, we're also, uh, you have at our fingertips more knowledge than anybody's ever had in history, even just 20 years ago. And, you know, there's a lot of good things about that, even if we don't memorize as much information. 
Yeah, we're, we're constantly cognitively outsourcing the stuff we don't want to deal with, right? You're like, you know what? I don't want to worry about maps. Something else do it for me. I don't want to pick up groceries. Something else do it for me. I don't want to. To where, like, in this day and age, like, I can order, any, like, in this conversation, I could order something, probably have it delivered, you know, by the end of the day. And, and it's just amazing to think how fortunate and how blessed we are, but how quickly we, we, we adapt to that. Do you think... Uh, like, let's just look at virtual reality. Do you think that that technology is disconnecting us and making us more isolated or is it reconnecting us? And if it's, if it is making us more, what, what would it take for it to actually allow us to become more reconnected or is it already doing it? Do you, does that make sense? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, as with any of these things, I think it, it, it does both. Although sometimes you want to be disconnected that I know some people who use their VR headset to watch TV and the quality of the TV isn't as good, but they can do it in a room with lots of distractions and people that they don't want to talk to at the, that time. And by having that, you know, taking them completely out of the world, it's a good thing. But I absolutely believe that VR and certainly AR, when you can actually see the world around you as well, have huge potential to improve connections rather than uh, discourage them. Uh, boy, I could go on for a long time about that, but just the, the simplest example I'll give is uh, I've been doing some work with a startup called uh, Adventure Lab that uh, their first product was a multiplayer virtual reality escape room where up to uh, at first four people and they've, they've expanded it can all enter virtual reality and become, it's, it's Dr. Crumb's School for Disobedient Pets is the name of their, their first uh, adventure uh, escape room. And it's started by a couple ex-Pixar people, so it's got a very strong Pixar vibe. And there is a fifth person who is a, a host, who's a trained improv actor, who plays not only Dr. Crumb, who's the, the sort of comical bad guy, but also a guy named Chief, who's your commander who sends you off to infiltrate Dr. Crumb. And you and the other characters are all pets. You're a dog or a cat or a hamster, and you're an animated hamster in VR. It is, and people can play from anywhere in the world. It is amazing how VR can bring you together and seeing somebody's hand gestures and head tilts, even as a giant, uh, you know, um, hamster, I can recognize my friend right away and getting to be with them and getting to be with the other people on the development team and working in VR, it was a new level for me of feeling like I was in the room with these people, even though they were in some cases on a different continent. It, and it just, it, it, VR getting into the neuroscience can go straight to your amygdala, which is the part of your brain that does the fight or flight stuff, but it's also the part of your brain that helps you feel connected to people, you know, triggers compassion and empathy. And VR is being used, uh, one of the early uses I heard uh, six, no, four or five years ago was uh, taking people through some of the resettlement camps from Syrian refugees and bringing that to the UN and having people at the UN get to have a camera, a VR camera's eye view of these settlement camps. And it, uh, you know, I've, I've seen this uh, uh, particular uh, VR experience and it's amazingly, uh, empathic, you really feel a lot of what it's like to be there in a way that even a, a good movie can't do because you don't have that sense of being there and being immersed in the actual environment that VR can give you. 
That's really cool. The uh, um, Adventure Lab, Dr. Crumbs, um, that I actually, I've downloaded it. I haven't played it yet. I've watched some playthroughs um, on online. I want to go and play it. The, the one thing, yeah, human improv, a talented hum, human improv, when people go, oh, I want to I code an AI system to be able to do that for me. It's like, clearly you don't know AI. So for that right now is how do you, how do you make the gap or, or is the plan to eventually capture enough data to then label it and organize it and then get an AI to do it for you? But how do you balance out? Because you're right, the human interaction element is the key piece that makes the magic because of the engagement. Telling stories in games suck. They do. Every kid, I, I was just talking to Dave Perry about this, and, they, and, and Disney demanded that they had Aladdin on the, on, uh, the Aladdin story in the game for Aladdin. And he goes, okay, and they're doing play tests. They're watching all these kids, and everyone's just like, you know, skip, 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 just tapping the skip button, right? And there's only one girl watched it. And at the very end, they're like, why'd you watch it? She's like, I thought there was going to be something important. I'm so disappointed. There was nothing important to tell me. So, so two questions. Feel free to tackle them however you want is one how do you how do you how do you create that human element and facilitate then scale the human element as one piece and the other piece that's just as challenging is how do you integrate a story into a video game and when nobody wants to hear your story so what how do you, how do you balance those are two different questions feel free to talk either one well let me start with the the second one um and you may need to prompt me again on that first one but the the there's a the, the anecdote you just told me perfectly understandable to me, there is, on the surface, a video game these days and a movie look very similar. Um, you know, the, the visual quality can be uh, identical, really, uh, you know, for the, the best games out there. Um, and this, the kind of stories that people like to hear are very similar in the game and in the movies. But that's a very deceptive similarity because under, its, its, under the, the hood, they're literally 180 degrees apart. Um, again, getting to evolution, uh, we like stories because when somebody tells us about what's going on, uh, if it's a story about life and death, if it's a story about life and death that might affect you, you are riveted and really interested in what's going on. And you want to find out what did that person do? Well, how did they experience it? How can I avoid that kind of problem? Or what did they do to succeed and win and triumph in the end? I mean, that's the... the the, the plot of so many uh, books and, and movies these days, forever. Yeah. But when you're playing a game, it's that same kind of thing. How can I survive? What can I do? Games also, the, the most popular games are about sort of life and death things or about relationships. It's very Darwinian. It's either how do I survive or how do I reproduce and how am I going to you know, work out a relationship with somebody else uh, or do both of them at once, of course, since so many stories involve both of those aspects. But there it is about what do I do and how do I do that? So when you stop the action and say, watch Aladdin and hear about his story, it's like wrenching control away from the player saying, no, I don't, I want to be Aladdin or I want to experience his world. I don't want to hear you tell me about Aladdin. If I wanted that, I would have watched the Aladdin movie. And conversely, if you have a movie, you don't want in the middle of the movie to have you know Luke Skywalker turn to you and say, so what do you think? Should I fight him with my lightsaber or should I uh, run away? We've tried that, people have done that over and over again, always fails miserably because you wanna hear what his choice was. And when he asks you, it invalidates 
the quality of the story because it's no longer here's what I did to survive. It's like, you know, oh, Dylan, what did what would you do? And suddenly it's it's like, no, this isn't a real story. You're just making this up, and it's it's up to me. Mm. So anyway, that's at the core of why we need to do that. And as a consequence, in order to be a good storyteller in interactivity, mm. we need to design a world and affordances, uh, things that the player can do that allow them to really get immersed in the world and make decisions. And of course, what games do that you know almost all movies and books don't do or can't do is allow you to try something, fail, try something, fail, try a different thing and succeed. And that gets right to that heart of the evolutionary thing of, I am learning how to get better at this. Uh, in fact, that's true, not just of video games, but of sports and board games. They're all around learning survival skills if you dissect them to the, the deepest level. So it's almost like the way that you can tell a story to somebody, well, there's a couple of ways just reflecting back here is one, is if you say what i'm about to tell you involves uh your future decisions on life or death so pay attention because this is critical because you're going to need to apply this shortly so you add meaning to the story so they pay attention and they get that that's one piece and that's a that is the if you're going to do it do it that way the better way to do it is to design and design an experience that allows someone to take actions and then by taking actions they are crafting the story in their own head and so they're going through that and then they're like, okay, okay. So the, the game I'm playing here is X, right? And then you, and then you go along that path, which makes, which is <clears throat> easier said than done. Uh, Cause it's so much easier just to tell someone what to do than to really, really hope, especially like in VR and other places, you don't have a lot of frame control. Someone might just twirl around and for 10 minutes because they want to, like it just, you have no way to like, okay, I'm going to force them to look at this or look at that. Have you, in terms of, showing things have you seen a way to create any type of frame control in vr or ways to be able to direct the player to have them kind of give them that what do you call the magician's choice you know yeah um well first I, i'll say in that 400 project i mentioned before we we boiled down what you just described that you know anybody who's taken any writing course will learn the the dictum to to show don't tell or show don't tell yeah. that if you in your story you say you know, Harry was scared. He was really, really nervous. That's telling. If you say Harry sat there uh, shivering occasionally, you know, his teeth were chattering so loud despite the warmth of the room that, you know, he was afraid people would hear him and his nails were bitten to the quick. That's showing that he's really nervous. In games, it's do, don't show. You want to become Harry and experience what's making him nervous because there's this boss monster coming and you know you may not be able to defeat him rather than being told this is an angry boss monster and you should be scared you're scared because of your experiences so that's really the do don't show is is at the uh, heart of, of what you know telling a good story in interactivity is your framing thing there's a million different ways to do it and and just like uh, filmmakers have learned all these ways we we do many things with games um, back in the 90s one of the the techniques that we came up with it's still used to a degree today but not as much was that if it was letterboxed and you the screen had black bars at the top and bottom it was cinematic and you stop and you can watch and then when the bars go away and it's full screen that's the signal. Okay, pick up the you know controller, start playing again, because it's going to be interactive. And so games that alternated between those did that. 
These days, it's much more likely, partly because the technology can support it, that those two things are seamless. The story changes and evolves and is told even as you're playing through the world, which takes a huge amount of computer horsepower and very expensive uh, development to make it possible. But we can do that now, and it's actually fun to have it seamless that way. Yeah, it's it's a it's a masterpiece. That's why when you're talking about like some of the brute force methods is like, well, let's put in an improv actor, and then he'll just ring you, he'll 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 guide you through it the best way possible, you know. So it makes I mean it's what they do in actual escape rooms. They have a person watching in the background with a clipboard, so it makes a ton of sense, and it's a great way to get it done. It's just the you know it, you know everybody wants AI, you know you know scaling. Well, you know through. improv actors, you have to. It doesn't scale as well. You need to hire the improv actors. It turns out that this last year with so many of their venues closed, they're really happy to, to find a way to, to do it online. But I would say, you know, and, and part of one of your earlier questions was, you know, we're talking about AI. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the things that a human can do as an improv actor, we are decades from being able to do with AI, uh, or at least being able to do well enough that it's convincing. It's very much like the uh, uncanny valley effect that we've had computer graphics in movies for over 30, you know, I guess the earliest ones are almost 40 years ago now. And it wasn't really until the last few years they could do convincing humans and not have it seem creepy. And even now, a lot of movies don't get it quite right. But, you know, you think back to things like uh, Tom Hanks and the Polar Express, yeah. really tough movie because people just didn't look real enough. Um, we're at that kind of stage now where we were 30 years ago in terms of interaction with computers, if it's really constrained, Pixar did really well by showing you uh, toys or insects or things that weren't human so you could actually enjoy that. And then they gradually got good enough that they could do more human characters. But even now they don't try to make photorealistic humans. They just use their cartoon uh, imagery. We do that with AI and we constrain things. You're talking to a robot, not another human being. and AI can do a better job at convincing you it's a robot than it's a human. With these improv actors and the Adventure Lab thing, one of the things that came up is one of the players uh, meeting this Dr. Crumb character. Uh, it was a woman. She said, oh, Dr. Crumb, you don't recognize me? I'm your grandmother. And as an improv actor, hmm. he's trained to do yes and. So rather than say, are you crazy, lady? It was like, oh, grandma, how are you? And for the rest of the adventure, they kept riffing off of, oh, I remember when you were a little boy and you did this sort of thing. <laughs> and the other people were just having a wonderful time because here's their friend who's pretending to be a grandma and the character's coming alive and there's no way you can program an AI today to understand what it would mean to be somebody's grandmother and what kind of experiences you should talk about. Yeah. You know, so I think we're, we're a long way from that uh, uh, flexibility. And I think we'll have humans in the loop, but in increasingly scalable and, and less uh, 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 sort of blatant ways, you know, uh, fill, filling them in. I mean, one of the things that you can do with uh, the Dr. Crumb adventures, they have one person who plays three or four different characters and they use a voice distorter and the skill of this person putting on different accents that I myself and most of the other people playing it don't realize there aren't four other people in the room. It's just the same person. And that's why you never see them at the same time. See, and that's, and it's cool. And you're, what you nailed on is it's it's this it's the spread of the human. We are a general purpose machine. We do general purpose things, which which means we also play these weird games where I, I we 
we pretend that we're each other's grandmothers. And you're like, I get the game. And then you pick up and you start riffing. And that and that that inside secret is what makes that fun. That is a very generalized human condition thing. It's like it's like AI has narrow intelligence, right? And we want this general purpose intelligence that just doesn't do it. It just doesn't do it. But like anybody rifting with a I'll be your grandma, because then you could play there's so many fun things that you could do with that. So yeah, I could totally see. It's just you can tell when people want that, but they don't understand the distance to that. It's it's the, you know, why can't we have flying cars that run on solar? <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're like, well, science, you know, and so that's that's the gap that we that's what we face. Um, this is this is fantastic. So let me ask you, what's your? I mean, you've you've been in the space for a while. You're in neuroscience. You're in gaming. You're in AR. You're in VR. You're in probably many other things. What's your holy grail? Like, what do you what what drives you to do all this? What's your what's your, you know what you know what? Do you have an in in thing that you're doing this for? Is there a place you want to get to? Or you know, I, it's funny you say holy grail because I uh, was the uh, co-designer on um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade game years ago, where he's looking for a holy grail. So uh, I've, I've got some you know intimate experience with searching for that. Uh, yeah, I have to say, for me, it has been I, just what I mentioned before, that as soon as I got my first job in the industry, literally within days of graduating college, um, I had this sense of, wow, this is so much fun, and they're actually paying me to do it, and it's really interesting, and there's new stuff all the time. I wonder how long this will And I haven't had to change that philosophy very much. You know, I've had to learn a lot, and I've, I've loved that process. But um, I mean, the, the people I really respect uh, who have stayed active and you know vital throughout their careers have that in common that they're they're constantly acquiring new things and it's it's not the ones who kind of specialize in one thing and get stuck on it. I mean, I think there are a few few crafts and and artistry things that can be that way, but uh, technology doesn't work that way. And uh, what I love is that as a game designer, I've been able to just follow what I really loved. And it's a cliche, but most people have to choose between doing what they love and doing something that they can earn a living at. And I just feel very you know, gifted and lucky that uh, I've been able to do both of those with, with you know, uh, two birds in one hand. That's beautiful. I mean, it really is. I mean, being able to work and play in an area that, that lights you up. I know um you know for us like we have clients and people that we get in we play test with them and it's just it's a fun fun vernacular to to have the verb of to play and get in and do that stuff so um i i completely agree with you on that on that front what you know there's there's young people out there who are super excited about this technology they're super excited about vr they're super excited about game design um but you know there's there's a whole world of stuff out there i mean what advice would you give to aspiring young game designers out there that are looking to to get ahead, looking to to level up their skill sets? Um, how? Because there's so many things you could do. You could you could you could barely, you know you could. You, there's a plenty of places to waste time. If they had habits or skills or rituals or patterns, what advice would you give to um, aspiring game designers that 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 um, want to level up quickly? Two simple things. One is do small things and complete them. Uh, much better to have done 
five really small games. And if you're interested in being a game designer, but you can't code yourself, there are um, you know programs out there now that let you actually build games. And Roblox, of course, has become as hugely popular and profitable, uh, allowing people to make their own games without a lot of uh, technical skill. Um, but do small things. I mean, there's there's a tendency you want to do something really big. You you love Fortnite. You want to make Fortnite. You know, or World of Warcraft or something. And don't start there. Take something really small, however small you think it is. Find something much smaller than that. Maybe it's just making uh, a very simple Candy Crush style match three game, but you have some twist you want to put on it. And do that, and have lots of little things to experience because you want to iterate. The other thing, and this this goes beyond uh, you know game designers in particular, is just to be persistent. Uh, when I look at who has succeeded in the industry, you know, the games industry, but also in life in general, it tends to be the people that keep going. Uh, for example, I, I know somebody who sent out their resume to five uh, companies, got rejections within a week, and just gave up on you know that being a career choice. And they were really good, but companies aren't always hiring all all, all the time. There are hundreds, there are thousands of companies that are possibilities. I've seen other people that weren't very good, didn't have a lot of talent, but they put out a thousand resumes and number 973 hit and they're happy as a clam and doing fine. And you know, another case in point from the games industry, uh, I hear arguments about whether it was number 51 or 53, but uh, Angry Birds was, you know, the, the, that company, uh, Rovio had made over 50 games and they were in the process of filing for bankruptcy when Angry Birds is their 53rd game suddenly. Wow. Took you know, so if they had not been persistent, if they'd made three games and said, we haven't had a huge hit, let's give up. They never would have hit Angry Birds. So um, lots of iteration and finishing things and being persistent. And if you can combine those two things, then almost guaranteed whether you're skilled or not, you'll succeed. And if you're really skilled at something, you're going to do very, very well. That's awesome. And it's also it tells people like, yeah, what, okay, you want to get started? Great. What's your big vision? Now cut that in half. Now cut that in half. Now cut that in half. Now cut in a half. Now you got to, now you got a week, go do it. <laughs> it's like, exactly. just kind of just cut because constraints are the way that experts get started. And yeah. the converse, conversation goes full circle. Um, with that being said, um, is there any last things you'd like to let people know about uh, before you can tell people how they find more about what you're doing or if they if they can get a hold of you? Well, I think I've covered it pretty well, but I, I mentioned a monkey anecdote. Let me throw that yeah. in as a bonus. Um, so one of the things I discovered in learning about neuroscience is that there was a um, an experience that this scientist designed way back in the late 1940s, a guy named Harry Harlow. And he's known for experimenting with rhesus monkeys and this kind of creepy thing he did with making monkeys out of cloth, uh, mother monkeys out of cloth or out of wire and seeing whether these baby monkeys would prefer the artificial cloth mother or the wire mother, even if the only, only the wire mother had a bottle to nurse from. Mm. So anyway, that was what he did later. Before he got to that, he did a study on motivation and monkeys. And he constructed this uh, puzzle, basically, a bunch of different little uh, interlocking uh, clips and things that had to be assembled in a certain way. 
And his plan was to put this in with two groups of monkeys and one of them wouldn't receive any incentives. The other group would get uh, grapes or some kind of food every time they started working with this thing and trying to complete it. And his hypothesis, and this was in the 1940s when everybody was into how can we increase workers and should we pay them more or how can we get this going? His hypothesis was that of course the monkeys that you're paying to do this will do a better job. Um, and in fact, well, what is that he put these, these gadget setups into both cages and gave them a couple of weeks to get used to it uh, because they didn't want them to be scared by it. And in both cages, the monkeys started, there's no better word than this, playing with this thing on their own without any motivation from you know food. And they both got fairly good at kind of manipulating this sort of thing. But then he started the actual test and he was excited because the ones he paid to complete it got fat quickly much better at it but then he stopped paying them he finished his test started writing it up and all the monkeys in that group gave up on it completely if you're going to pay me great if you're not stop paying me i have no more interest in the other cage the monkeys kept playing with it over and over again and they got much better than the monkeys who were paid it just took them a longer time and it really goes to something called intrinsic motivation but it's at the heart of why we love to play games. If you're given a chance to play and discover these things yourself, it's just really fun and we're hardwired to enjoy that sort of thing. If you're forced into it or if you're bribed to do it, it quickly loses its luster. And I think that that speaks to a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today in, in many different directions. Oh, that's beautiful. That's, yeah, that makes a ton of sense. If if you're intrinsically motivated and you're doing it because, and then you're on the journey, you're gonna and even just picking it up a little in here, but you're consistently doing it, you're gonna improve. Versus, you could get a huge dopamine spike to to say, here's a here's here's money, here's rewards, here's success, here's fame, here's significance, here's ah, and then you pull that away, and then then it's it's there, there's no more motivation, there's no more in, intrinsic desire. And then it even feels less because it now devalues the act because you you basically overinflated the market. You, you the bubble popped on the desire. Wow, that's super yeah. interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And that makes a lot of sense. And so when you're designing things, uh, uh, don't don't uh, misincentivize people um, because you might be you might create the actual opposite. Uh, what we know as the Streisand effect um, <laughs> online. Um, and and actually causing them to go in the other direction. Wow. Yeah, there are plenty of cases where that's been done, and uh, it's a good lesson to learn from. That's beautiful. Uh, Noah, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, is there any last things you'd like to say or plug or do before we we wrap up this podcast? Uh, no, thanks. You know, I'm I'm happy that uh, you know I, I work as a freelancer for for many years, except for my stint at Google and. I'm happily very busy right now, so I'm, I'm not looking for anything new uh, to, to plug it. I just, uh, I guess I'll put in a plug for um, people to try VR if you haven't already. Uh, you know, the, the new headsets are constantly getting cheaper and better quality, and uh, I think there's something really exciting there that, uh, you know, I love. So, you know, if you've been dubious about it, uh, make the plunge and, uh, it, it won't separate you from other people. It'll, it'll give you a new way to unite with them. That's beautiful. And I completely agree 100%. So, uh, Noah, you, you've been a gem. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate all that you do. And um, I look forward to seeing you in the virtual landscapes. Thank you. And, and these have been great questions. I, I look forward to that as well. Thank you.
Take care now. I'll see you later. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or, if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.